on Ephesians 5, which in most versions, the, the text is headed by the, the title, Wives and Husbands, and includes the command for wives to be submissive to their own husbands. I wonder if Brandon didn't give that assignment to me because he didn't want to touch it <laughs> with a 10-foot Bible, but uh, I count it a privilege to share with you today. I do have a personal appeal to all of you, uh, and that is that the husbands here today focus on what this passage says to them, and the wives who are here focus on what this passage says to them. I know, of course, that there are unmarried people here also, and some that may never marry. This passage is not irrelevant to you because you know lots of married people, and uh, you will have opportunity in your life to encourage them, to counsel them, perhaps even rebuke them on occasion. And so we all need to know what God has to say to us on this important topic. Without further ado, let's read our scripture text today. Do you practice standing for the reading of God's word? If you do, please stand. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33 is the passage he assigned to me. And it says this, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me stop there for a moment. That's not even a sentence. That's just a dangling participle. I'm going to come back to that in a few moments. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, it's always important to pay attention to the structure of a passage, but especially in this case. I noted for you at the beginning of our reading that it began with a dangling participle, submitting to one another, but it really isn't dangling. If we examine the previous paragraph, it becomes quite clear that this participle parallels a number of other participles, all introduced by the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Submission is a result of the filling of the Spirit. Verse 18, And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. How do you do that? By, and he gives these participles, by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, by singing, by making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. These are five ways to demonstrate that you are filled with the Spirit of God. You notice anything missing there? There's nothing about tongues. There's nothing about holy laughter. There's nothing about a lot of things that people think are essential to being filled with the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit when we address one another in psalms and hymns, when we sing, when we make melody, when we give thanks, and when we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is crucial that we understand that submission is a result of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And it is actually impossible to submit to one another or for a wife to submit to her husband without the Holy Spirit's help. Secondly, we see that submission is a principle that all Christians should practice. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The verb to submit really means to arrange under. It has to do with recognizing the authority of someone in a higher position as soldiers submit to the authority of their captain or their general, any officer of superior rank. Since all of us are in a position of authority over someone, and at the same time, all of us are in a position under the authority of others, I think Paul's point is simply that we should all be submissive to proper authority wherever we find it. However, some interpreters of the Bible, in fact, a whole section of evangelicalism called egalitarians, that's a great big word, maybe you've never heard it before, it really means equalitarians, that's, that's an, another term for it, have done something with verse 21 that I don't think Paul intended. They take this mutual submission of all Christians to all other Christians as the controlling principle of our passage and use it to undermine the specific requirement of wives to be submissive to their husbands. Here's their argument. They say verse 21 teaches us to be submissive to one another. Therefore, a husband must be submissive to his wife just as a wife must be submissive to her husband. Therefore, nothing in this passage can allow <coughs> for distinctions between husbands and wives regarding submission. Voila, they have removed the burdensome and offensive notion that wives are in any way uniquely subject to their husbands. One popular egalitarian author writes this, this reciprocity of relationships renders hierarchical distinctions irrelevant 
within the Christian communities of church and family. Now, there's a couple of big words in there. It simply is saying that there's no reason a woman can't be the head of her home or the pastor of her church or an elder in the church. But is that really being honest with what Paul is communicating here? I don't think so. After all, submitting to one another is mentioned one time, while the wife's specific, <coughs> the, the wife's specific requirement to submit to her husband is mentioned three times, and the husband is never told specifically to submit to his wife. The term submit that you find there in verse 21 uh, in your English Bible must was not in the original. It must be supplied by the context. So here's, in essence, what Paul is saying. Submitting to one another. Be filled with the Spirit. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands. <clears throat> and I think this lends support to the fact that Paul is giving us a general principle that Christians should submit to proper authority wherever they find it. And then we are told that submission is lived out in the Christian household in three primary ways. Wives to their husbands, children to their parents, slaves to their masters. Those are the three passages coming up. By the way, it's interesting to me that the egalitarians who are claiming that there's no distinction between, should be no distinction between men and women, aren't nearly as eager to apply this logic to the next two sections, like for children to their parents. They're not telling us that parents should be obedient to their children. They're not telling us that employees should be, or employers should be obedient to their employees. They're just not being consistent. Well, with that emphasis on structure, I now want us to turn our attention to the apostle's uh, direction to the wife. A wife must submit to her husband, her own husband. Now, Paul's teaching on submission in the home is routinely viewed in our secular culture as chauvinistic or downright misogynistic, that is, woman-hating. I doubt if there's anything I can say this morning that would change their minds, but I'm hoping I can share with you from the scriptures today something that would help you see what God is really saying to us here. It is biblical, it is sensible, it is even beneficial. So let me start by saying what submission doesn't mean. Submission of wives to their husbands. First, it doesn't imply inferiority. And I can prove that because the very same word is used of Christ's submission to his Father. Was Jesus inferior to God? Of course not. That would be heresy. So there's no implied inferiority in the doctrine of submission. Ne nothing that Paul says here should be used to imply that women have less honor, less value than their husbands. In fact, I think most guys married up. I know I did. I suggest to you that 
there is an overriding principle on unity and equality in the church offered in Galatians chapter 3 that must inform the interpretation of every other passage on relationships, including this one. Here's what it says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That verse tells us that all believers are equal in God's sight. We're equal in worth and value. We are equal in spiritual status. We are equal in destiny. But of course, it cannot mean that we are equal in every respect. For example, we are not equal in strength. Is that? Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. We are not equal in strength, in abilities. We're not equal in giftedness, position, or authority. And in Paul's writings, there is just as strong an emphasis on diversity in the body of Christ. We're all different. God created us differently. Let's celebrate the differences is really what, what Paul is saying. Second, submission does not mean that all women are to be submissive to all men, but just to their own husbands. This passage doesn't speak about women in the military or women in government or women in the business world. Deborah was a great general in the Old Testament. She was a judge, a leader, a prophet, Esther and the Queen of Sheba were rulers over their nations. Lydia was a successful businesswoman. So the doctrine of submission of wives to their husbands doesn't even apply to those areas. Third, submission doesn't mean that the husbands have all the power. In fact, the New Testament doesn't even recognize power relationships. It recognizes leadership and authority. Submission does not mean that the husband needs to be in charge of everything or make all the decisions. In a good and godly marriage, the responsibilities of the home will be divided up according to ability. One of our best friends in St. Louis are a couple named Donnie and Joanne. Donnie does almost all the cooking in that family, and Joanne takes care of all the finances. Now, if we tried to do that in our home, we would starve to death and probably be in the poorhouse because that's not where our gifts lie. But it's fine. There's no problem, biblically speaking, with that kind of a relationship. If it works for them, it's okay. Nor does submission mean that wives are required to put up with abusive behavior. Paul never hints that physical or verbal abuse is justified in a marriage relationship, or for any other relationship, I might add. Women who are victims of such behavior should seek help from a counselor, help from their church, and if necessary, help from the governmental authorities. I want to make that absolutely clear. Well, if submission doesn't mean those things, what in the world does it mean? I think practically it means this. 
It means God has sovereignly appointed the husband to be the CEO of the Christian family. Let me explain this analogy. What is a CEO? Well, he's the chief executive officer of any corporation. He's the one who is ultimately responsible for the welfare and the profitability of that company. He certainly doesn't do all the work himself, nor does he make all the decisions. He probably isn't the smartest guy in the company, nor even the most valuable to the company. But he wisely gathers around himself experts in human resources, in finances, in production, in sales and marketing, and he gives them the responsibility and the freedom to do what they do best. By the way, there are never two CEOs in a company. There may be a CEO and a president, but there are never two CEOs. The buck has to stop somewhere. Likewise, in the home, in the Christian home, one person has to be ultimately responsible. And God has decided who that should be. We wouldn't have done it that way, would we, if it were left up to us? We all know some women who are far more gifted in leadership and administration than their husbands. So why shouldn't they be the CEO of their particular family? Why? Because God said so. God is never irrational or capricious about his rules and his principles. So we must trust that he had his reasons for saying the husband is to be the CEO. For one thing, I suspect he didn't want husbands and wives fighting it out as to who would be in charge. So to avoid bloodshed, he made the decision himself. But in addition, friends, God is the one who wired us as men and women in the first place. And I assume there is something about our basic wiring and the wiring of our children that functions best when the husband is the CEO of the family. That's a faith statement I'm making. I believe that God who wired us decided that the home works best when the husband is the CEO. Now, having discussed in the abstract what submission means, let's give attention to Paul's specific rationale for it. I don't know if you noticed, but the little word as appears many times in our text, seven times in these 12 verses. As generally introduces a simile. A simile is a word picture. Sometimes we do better understanding something if somebody shows us a picture of it, and that's what Paul's doing. So I want to share with you some of the similes, the word pictures, about submission. There are three uses of the word as in these instructions to wives. One each in verse 22, 23, and 24. First, wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. 
They are to do it because they are Jesus followers. Wives submit to their husbands not because the husbands deserve it, not because tradition requires it, but because Christ asks them to. That's the point. The second comparison explains that submission is based on leadership. Remember the CEO metaphor? It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body. What does it mean for the wife to recognize her husband as her head and the head of her home? Well, in what way is Christ the head of the church? Well, he's its leader. He's the one in ultimate authority. He's not a dictator. He's not abusive. He's not a tyrant. But Christ leads the church as her savior, as her shepherd, as her counselor, as her friend. Granted, not every husband exercises his leadership that way, but he should. We'll address the situation where he doesn't a little later. The third comparison comes in the next verse. Now, as the, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Again, Paul is thinking about how the church should submit to Christ, not how they always do. The church is full of fallen, broken people, and I'm one of them. And therefore, we're not always or ever what we ought to be. But when functioning as it is designed, the church submits to Christ, recognizing his authority and refusing to act independently in our own interests. The little phrase in everything causes some problems to us. What do you mean the wife should submit in everything? I don't think Paul's point is that, that the wife should be scrutinized in every detail of life and controlled by her husband. Certainly not that the husband's every whim must be met, but rather he is saying there are no spheres of life in which the wife should view herself as autonomous and independent of her husband, not in the financial realm, not in the decision-making realm. The, the husband is the CEO of the whole family. Now, these are profound pictures of what submission means. And uh, clearly, it's impossible for us to live up to this without the filling of the Spirit. I go back to that point he made earlier. Now, guys, you've enjoyed this sermon so far. You maybe even have elbowed your wife or said under your breath, preach it, brother. But um, to tell you the truth, when Brandon first asked me to teach, his first email said, would you teach up to verse 24, 21 to 24? And I wrote back to him and I said, Brandon, I can't preach verse 21 to 24 without preaching the following paragraph. They go together. 
And he wrote back and said, I made a mistake. I meant the whole passage. So you're going to get the whole passage. Men, in the rest of this passage addressed to us, you're going to find that it is three times as long. And that's because men are three times as clueless about what God wants from us. Or perhaps the real point is that our responsibility is even greater. So, here's the fundamental principle for men. A husband should love his own wife. This is repeated three times in verse 25, verse 28, verse 33. I find it interesting that though Paul commands wives to be in submission to their own husbands, he never tells the husband to keep his wife in submission. He doesn't say that. The husband's responsibility is to love his wife. Again, we're offered two similes, two word pictures to help us understand what this means. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, how did Christ love the church? Three aspects of Christ's love for the church are revealed here, all of which I believe we men need to imitate in respect to our wives. Christ loved the church with agape love. Now, I know you know from Brandon's preaching that there are a number of words for love in the Greek language that Paul could have used. He could have used a word that speaks of emotional love. He could have used the word for sexual love. He could have used the word for deep friendship. But he ignored those words and used a relatively rare word. He said why husbands must love their wives with agape love. This kind of love is best defined as love that acts for the best good and promotes the well-being of the other person, demanding nothing in return. This is a love that walks the walk, not just talks the talk. That's how Jesus loved us. He didn't just talk about his love. He acted on his love, dying on the cross, forgiving us, interceding daily for us. And he did this while we were his enemies, while we were sinners. All right. Now, I want you to know that nobody falls into love if it's agape love. You don't fall into agape love. You must choose agape love. It's a love of the will, not a love of the emotions. Emotions are simply not subject to commands. You can't command a person to like somebody else. They either do or they don't. But you can command agape love because it's a love of the will. Agape love is also unselfish. That is, it demands nothing in return. 
Jesus never loved the church for what he could get out of her. He always sought only her best good. But think with me, men, about some of the ways that we exhibit selfishness in our marriages. We take many of our wives' contributions to the home for granted. We make decisions without consulting her, or worse yet, against her advice. We refuse to open up about what is going on in our lives, our work lives, or our emotional lives. We pay more attention to the sports or the news than we do to her. We expect physical affection without first connecting with her emotionally. And the list could go on and on. Christ loved the church unselfishly. And Christ loved the church with a sacrificial love. Verse 25 says, he gave himself up for the church. The entire incarnation of Christ was a sacrifice. But without a doubt, the greatest way in which Jesus demonstrated his love for the church was through his sacrifice on the cross. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Christ's sacrifice for the church is an example for us husbands. Not that we can make the same spiritual sacrifice he made, but we do need to be willing to give up our very lives for our wife. The fact is, there probably isn't a man here who wouldn't theoretically say, I'm willing to give my life for my wife. But do we really mean that? Do we even make the lesser sacrifices of daily living for her? For example, when a man marries, he is commanded to sacrifice his ties to his parents. That's quoted right here in verse 31, Genesis 2. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. I've never seen a healthy marriage where this didn't take place. It doesn't mean that a man must abandon his parents. It doesn't mean that he has to refuse their counsel. But it does mean that he puts his wife first, ahead of his family. If the time ever comes when parents force him to make a choice between them and her, he must choose her. Clearly, that's what God commands. When a man marries, he also must sacrifice his independence, the right to spend his money any way he pleases, the right to control his time, the right to make career decisions on his own. That's a real sacrifice for men, especially guys who have 
lived on their own for a long time before they get married. One gets used to doing things his own way, you know. And marriage requires a sacrifice of that spirit of independence. Thirdly, Jesus loved the church with a purifying love. Our text goes on to tell us why Jesus gave himself up for the church. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The point is that Christ's love for the church is a love that cleanses, purifies, and refines. Now, Jesus is willing to accept us just as we are. He loves us unconditionally. But this does not mean he intends to leave us where we are. He has given us his word as a cleansing agent from the sin and the moral impurity in our lives to bring us to a place of maturity that makes us fit for the presence of a king. Likewise, a godly husband longs for growth in his wife's life. He, did, he desires and works for her to become all that she can be. He doesn't try to hold her back, but rather encourages her to use her talents and her abilities to become successful in whatever she pursues. There's a false concept that is widespread today, and that is that we should accept one another's faults and don't try to change one another. Live and let live. That, friends, is not how Christ treats us, and it's not a healthy approach to a Christian marriage. Acceptance certainly is a trait we must exhibit, in, in my opinion. But we must be willing to never cease wishing for the removal of those things in our spouse's life that are harmful to her ultimate uh, uh, success. Of course, it makes a great deal of difference how we seek the removal. We shouldn't be badgering. We shouldn't be harassing. Ridicule never works. Stonewalling seldom accomplishes its goal. Jesus doesn't purify the church in those ways. But loving encouragement can produce positive change in anyone. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, love her with an unselfish love, a sacrificial love, and a purifying love. But there's another simile that helps explain how a husband is to love his wife as he loves himself. Now, this is interesting. Um, I think I have to point out here, before we really understand this, that there's nothing wrong with loving oneself in the sense that Paul is talking about here in this passage. You know, Jesus said we should love our neighbor as ourself. Well, if it was wrong to love ourselves, then it would be wrong to love our neighbor because we're supposed to love them as we love ourselves. His point simply is that every human being, especially every man, loves himself. You never, you always do what you need to Take care of yourself. When you get hungry, 
You never say, there's that stomach growling again. I'm just going to let it growl. No, you, you eat. You satisfy what your body is craving. Um, if, well, there's, there's so many ways we could, we could apply that. Uh, when we get tired, do we ever say, this bod is tired again? I can't believe it. There's so much work to do. And then this body's getting tired. No, we go rest. We hit the sack. We take care of ourselves is the point I'm trying to make. I trust the point is established that every man loves his own body. Then Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 to say husbands and wives are one. So you see the logic clearly. If there is a mystical and physical union between husband and wife, that disallows the husband from ever thinking independently for himself. Men, love yourselves. Seek the best for yourselves. Men, treat yourselves as kings, but recognize that the best way to accomplish this is to love your wife. Now, in the last verse, Paul gives us a summary of what he's been trying to teach us here. He says, let each one of you Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here, Paul is individualizing his exhortation. For the most part, in this passage, he has spoken in the plural to all the wives out there and all the husbands. But now, he gets very individual with us. He says, let each one of you, no husband is excluded. No wife is excluded. We are to love our wives, we are our wife, we are to respect our husband. The difference between, um, let me back up and say, some wives um, can't respect the character of their husband because their husband is not respectable. But they can respect his position. And Paul says that must be done. A wife must respect her husband's position in the family. Just before we close, I want to import, bring up an important topic that I mentioned earlier. What if a husband is not a godly, respectable, loving husband? What if he doesn't love his wife as Christ loved the church? What if he doesn't even love himself? Does she still need to submit to him? What if a wife refuses to submit to her husband or to respect him? Does he still need to love her? I respectfully submit that these are the wrong questions to be asking. Let me try a different one. Can I trust God enough as a Christian wife to submit to my husband and see whether God will use that submission along with the gospel to change my husband into the man that God wants him to be, a loving husband? Or can I trust God enough as a Christian husband to love my wife 
with agape love, even if she's not submissive to me, and see whether God will use my love for her, along with the gospel, to change her into the wife God wants her to be. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Bible scholar, has stated concerning what Paul taught us here in this passage today, the failure to understand and implement the truth of these verses is the cause of most of the problems in the world today. That may sound like an overstatement, but I doubt if it is. Friends, I think we should close this morning with a time of quiet confession and recommitment. Wives, we Christian husbands know that we have failed you. We have failed to love you as Christ loved the church. But most of us really want to do better. Hopefully we have a little more knowledge after being here this morning, to know how to do that. And husbands, our wives know that they have failed us too. Some have been resentful, distant, independent, disrespectful. But they too want to do better. They need for us to pray for them, to be patient with them, and try to help them. But it's not going to happen, friends, on either side if we don't let the Holy Spirit of God control our lives because we need his power to accomplish what we've been commanded to do here today.